Well, this morning we will finish up Matthew chapter 15. We've been here for a little while. We began Matthew's Gospel in December of 2019, if you can believe that, and uh, worked our way through all during the COVID shutdown and just kept on plugging. And here we are knocking the door on 2023, and we're still here. Um, We'll be here until I'm 85, so that'll be good. No, what a tremendous joy and a privilege it is to just spend our time. Uh, I remember talking to someone one time and they, they said, boy, you move really slow through the Gospels. And I remember thinking to myself, well, what else are we going to do? I mean, you got somewhere else to be, you know? I mean, so here we are. We have the blessing and the opportunity of every single week, especially in this Gospel, just gazing at Christ week after week after week, year after year. What a blessed opportunity for us as believers, to look at the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, there is no greater and more magnificent person ever to exist than we can look at him. So what a blessing it is. When we consider the ministry and the mission of Jesus Christ, however, we find that we're oftentimes motivated toward a couple of questions. For example, people will ask this question, why did Jesus come to earth? What was his mission? And that's very confusing for many people today. That's, that's, that question is on the, uh, on the block, if you will, always being asked and trying to be answered. Jesus himself answers this question in Luke 19.10. He says, The Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. That's why he came. He's here on a rescue mission to redeem sinners to himself, dying on the cross to pay for their death their sins, earning their forgiveness, establishing peace and reconciliation with the Father, and securing everlasting life in heaven. Now, if he had simply shown up and told people, I'm here to rescue you from the wrath of God and pay for your sins, likely very few would have believed him. Well, why? Well, because anybody can say that. Any person can come and say, I'm here to do a spiritual work for you. Anybody can claim spiritual ministry, but how do you prove that that ministry is real? Because there's been a lot of, and they, scholars have said there, there have been, they believe, up to 50 different people during the life and the ministry and the times of Jesus within that maybe 100-year span, 50 or so supposed messiahs that came to Israel declaring themselves to be the Messiah. So let's just say that in the timeline, Jesus is number 41, and he comes in and says, I'm the Messiah, and they're, they're going to say, well, prove it. However, Jesus has the authority and the ability to prove that he is who he says he is. On what authority, because that's the question, what authority can you claim to save people eternally? Knowing this to be a challenge and understanding the stubbornness of the human heart, Jesus offers a series of signs that demonstrate that he wielded the power and the authority of God. And these Miraculous signs served as irrefutable proof that what Jesus was saying was verifiably true. Rarely in history have there been periods of time where such signs and and wonders were so plentiful. In fact, I can think of only three, only three periods of biblical history and human history where there has been such a a condensed and powerful uh, force of of miraculous power. The first is during the time of Moses, and we just heard that scripture read about. The time of Moses when he's uh, receiving the law of God from the Lord himself, and he's given, we see all kinds of 
signs and powerful wonders happening through the ministry of Moses. The second period of time was during the ministries of Elijah and Elisha when they had inaugurated the season of prophecy. So during that period of time, lots of signs and wonders were being done. And the third period of time is this period right here, Jesus and the apostles. They're declaring the way of salvation and expressing the ministry and the reality of the new covenant. But apart from those three periods, signs and wonders have been extremely rare in world history. Extremely rare. But miraculous signs were prevalent in Jesus' ministry to authenticate his identity as the Messiah, as Son of David, as Savior, as Lord God. And as he performed these miraculous signs, what was the inner, inner disposition of the heart to those who were approaching him? What was Jesus thinking and feeling, and where was his heart while he was doing all these things? And we're going to find out today, and we have been seeing this all along, that his heart was one of love and compassion. And so if you haven't already turned there, turn to the end of Matthew chapter 15. Matthew 15. We're going to read the last 11 verses here. Jesus had been ministering in Israel for the better part of two years. He'd been there for two years ministering after a really a tense exchange with the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 15, verses 1 through 10, he made a decision to withdraw for a short season of rest. And he goes to the region of Tyre and Sidon, which is Gentile territory. These are non-Jews. They're known for their godlessness and their pagan idolatry. It's not a good place for a Jew to be. But once he arrives, he is quickly discovered by a Canaanite woman, a Syrophoenician woman, whose daughter is demon-possessed, and we read about this last week, and she desperately needs his help because her daughter needs to be healed. And how does he respond to her request? We picked this up in last week. We saw this last week in chapter 15, verse 24. He answered and said to the woman, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and began to bow down before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered and said, It is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she said, Yes, Lord, but even the dogs feed on the crumbs which fall from their master's table. Jesus' reason for not helping her in the moment was his insistence that the mission was preeminently for the people of Israel. Frankly, all the non-Jews, the Gentiles, don't have much to do with the God of Israel. They don't know him. They don't care to know him. They're preoccupied with sinfully worshiping their own pagan deities with all kinds of detestable practices. And so what interest would a Gentile have in anything to do with the Lord? Yet this Canaanite woman knows that he is the Messiah. She even calls him by this messianic title, Son of David, which only you would know if you were studying this out. And she pleads with him to show mercy. Well, this plea reaches the heart of the Lord. And we read in verse 28, he, he really, he, he changes his tune very quickly. And we talked about this last week, that his, his heart was always of compassion. There's a reason why he spoke to her the way he did. But in verse 28, Jesus said to her, O woman, your faith is great. It shall be done for you as you wish. And her daughter was healed at once. And by healing, I want you to note this, by the healing of the daughter of the Canaanite woman, Jesus is demonstrating in the eyes of all the apostles that are with him right that, in that moment, he demonstrates to them and to the whole world that salvation is to the Jew first, but it is also meant for the Gentile also. 
It's not exclusive only to Israel. Now, in this period of of salvation history, in this distinct moment, he's ministering only to Israel, but he's breaking the door wide open. And they're witnessing this happen. Yes, the grace of God is abundant and extends to all who would believe with a humble and repentant spirit. But it's all on the heels of this specific story that we're picking up what happens next. So we're seeing everything changing at this point in our story. Pick it up in verse 29. Matthew 15, 29. Departing from there, Jesus went along by the Sea of Galilee, and having gone up on the mountains, He was sitting there. And large crowds came to Him, bringing with them those who were lame, crippled, blind, mute, and many others. And they laid them down at His feet, and He healed them. So the crowd marveled as they saw the mute speaking and the the crippled restored and the lame walking and the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. And Jesus called His disciples to Him and said, I feel compassion for the people because they have remained with Me now three days and I have had nothing to eat. And I do not want to send them away hungry for they might faint on the way. The disciples said to Him, Where would we get so many loaves in this desolate place to satisfy such a large crowd? And Jesus said to them, How many loaves do you have? And they said, Seven and a few small fish. And he directed the people to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves and the fish, and giving thanks, he broke them and started giving them to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the people. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they picked up what was left over of the broken pieces, seven large baskets full. And those who ate were 4,000 men besides women and children. And sending away the crowds, Jesus got into the boat and came to the region of Magadan. And so Jesus begins, or excuse me, Matthew begins this section here, noting that Jesus departs from there, which is the region of Tyre and Sidon. We know that. And he travels along by the Sea of Galilee. Now, from the region he's coming from, which is in the, north, uh, the northwest, he could either be traveling along the western side of the sea, which is Israel, or down the southeast side, which is Gentile territory. Scholars believe, because of the way the narrative lays out, that Jesus is going down the southeastern side because he's eventually going to end up in Decapolis, uh, a, region, uh, a Gentile region east of the Sea of Galilee. So once he arrives... He makes his way up to this mountain. Now, we don't know which mountain that is. That's okay. But the text says that he goes up this mountain and he was sitting down. Sitting down is important because that is the posture of a rabbi who's about to begin teaching. And so Jesus is teaching from a a seated position. And then we read in verse 30 here, Large crowds came to him, bringing with them those who are lame, crippled, blind, mute, and many others, and laid them down at his feet, and he healed them. Now, word has begun to spread that there is a man, a Jewish man, who is in our Gentile region here. He can, he can heal people. And so the, the story would have spread. You heard what happened to the Syrophoenician woman, right? If, if he can do that for her, I wonder what he can do for me. And so the, the crowds begin to come out. And they brought with them, the Bible says... The lame, those whose bodies were maimed, and then crippled. We understand those whose bodies were deformed. Now, they can be synonymous, those two words here, 
But these aren't just injuries that have destroyed the body uh, through, you know, you, you fell off and you broke your arm or you severed something. This is also including genetic defects in others. So again, this isn't just, uh, this isn't just a mild injury. This is someone who has a genetic problem or a, a deformed body or a cognitive disability. These are, these are people who are seriously uh, lame and crippled, according to the scriptures here. He also says that they, they bring out the blind, those who are without sight, the mute, those who could not speak, and even by implication, those who are deaf and can't hear or speak. And it says many others. Now I want to stress here, this is not just your garden variety health and wealth revival here. Now, we've seen these kinds of things throughout the course of the last hundred years, even, in our country. This wasn't a guy with an, a neck ache, or a person who's hopping around with a crutch who suddenly declares that they're healed. It's not any kind of subterfuge like that. These are deeply afflicted, diseased, deformed, desperate people in need of a true healer. One of my friends, Justin Peters, is, he suffers from cerebral palsy, and he walks with crutches and usually has a motor cart. And his body is so, uh, so crippled and so deformed from this disease. And he, early in his life in ministry, or excuse me, in his life, he would actually go to a lot of these faith healer kind of events. And he, at the time, he wanted to be healed. He was told that maybe he could be healed, and so he would go. And of course, they would never bring him up. They would see him coming. They never brought him up. Shame on them. Because if you have the ability to heal a person like that, then you should. You have the obligation before God to try to do that. But they never wanted to touch Justin, ever. And over the course of his time, he actually became an evangelist and a minister and began to find out that a lot of these kinds of events, they were, they were just fake. And he would call them out. And he would actually, this video of this man getting up on his crutches and calling out false teachers who were claimed to have the gift of healing and could not heal. That is not what this is. These are people with genuine infirmities, genuine deformity. These are desperate, wounded, afflicted people. And all of them are brought to Jesus. And it says, it's very touching, they are laid down at his feet. Why were they laid down? Because most of them probably couldn't walk. And so they came and they scooped up these poor people, laid them down in front of Jesus. And these poor, afflicted people gazed at him with just... Hope, can you heal me? Can you fix me? And in a beautiful display, such a wonderful Lord, the Bible says, and He healed them. That's inclusive. Meaning He healed all of them. There's never a time where Jesus doesn't heal those who come to Him. He healed them. Perfectly, fully, completely, wonderfully. In fact, Mark records just one example from this specific instance. Turn over to Mark chapter 7. I want you to see this, how Jesus is doing this. Mark 7 is a parallel passage, we believe, and it connects this account of Matthew's gospel here. And we see here Mark chapter 7. Beginning in verse 31, you're going to see some very similar language here because it's parallel. Mark 7, 31. Again, he, referring to Jesus, went out from the region of Tyre and came through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee within the region of Decapolis. And they brought him, one who was deaf and spoke with difficulty, and they implored him to lay his hand on him. 
Jesus took him aside from the crowd and by himself put his fingers into his ears. And after spitting, he touched his tongue with the saliva. And looking up to heaven with a deep sigh, he said, Ephaphtha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, and the impediment of his tongue was removed, and he began speaking plainly. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. I want you to see, beloved, just how intimate this is. This is so intimate. He's not walking by just waving his hand indiscriminately. He's not slapping people with his cloak like Benny Hinn. That's not what Jesus is doing. Verse 33, Jesus takes the man aside personally, intimately, privately. He leads him and says, here, come here. Let me spend some time with you. Brings the man over and touches the man's ears with his fingers. The hand of the Lord into the ears of those he had formed. And then he, in the most intimate way, touches his tongue with his own saliva. I mean, you almost kind of recoil because would you want some stranger walking up and touching you with their saliva? No. But how many moms and dads will go to their own children and they'll clean their face and they'll touch their tongue or, heaven forbid, your, your child is choking on something and you reach your finger in to free their airway. Isn't it tender and intimate that you would touch your own child's face and ears? That you would be tender and gentle with them, that's the Lord here. He's touching His own child with His own hands. You can't get any more personal than that. I'm watching some of you squirm and squeam a little bit, right? It's so personal. But that's what He does. And here's the thing, beloved. He does this repeatedly. He does this with so many people. So loving. So tender. So affectionate. Go back to chapter 15. What is the result of this ministry to all of these poor and hurting people? What is the result of it? Look at verse 31 of Matthew's Gospel here. So the crowd marveled as they saw the mute speaking, and the crippled restored, and the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. Two words I want to highlight here. They marveled and they glorified. They saw the undeniable power of God coursing through the hands of Jesus. It was undeniable. They they saw people who couldn't speak all of a sudden break out and begin to speak. They saw the crippled restored. Their bodies were restored and the lame got up and walked. And the blind could see. And they marveled. Thaumadzo struck with awe. They saw this and they were struck and they fell back. I can't believe what I'm seeing here. And not just one person. And not just some little leg lengthening exercise of the hucksters that they use. I'm talking about genuine miracle where a person's arm grows back. And a person whose feet are atrophied and legs are atrophied because they've never used them before, they begin to grow muscles instantly and get up and walk and support their own weight. This is miraculous, and they marveled at Jesus. Who is this that does these things? They marveled. They were struck with awe. Because what response would you have? I would marvel. Wouldn't you? 
That's their knee-jerk reaction to marvel. And it produced another reaction. After the instantaneous marveling at what they saw, their other response built from that was that they glorified the God of Israel. Now here's the thing. That's, this verbiage is really important. Because none of their pagan gods and man-made idols could do anything that Jesus just did. They created gods for themselves. They bowed down and worshipped idols that they made with their own wood. And none of their gods could do any of these things. See, the signs vindicated the ministry of Jesus. And the result was to produce a genuine worship for Yahweh, Jehovah, the God of Israel. So many hucksters today will claim to perform miracles, and they do so so that they might receive glory. It's for them. But Jesus, and later the apostles, performed the signs and the wonders in order to glorify God. God is to receive glory. Always. No matter what you're doing, no matter what ministry you have. Whether you're a preacher, whether you're an evangelist, whether you're running a, an orphanage, or a rescue ministry, whatever you're doing, whatever ministry you're part of, all of your efforts need to exist and ought to exist to glorify God supremely. It's never for our glory. And notice the Gentiles' response to the signs. It's different than that of the Pharisees. The Pharisees, they saw the same kinds of things. The Pharisees and religious leaders of Israel's, the Israel, they would behold the, the miracles of Jesus, and while they couldn't deny the authenticity... They never once denied, oh, that guy's not really healed. They knew he was healed. They never denied the authenticity, but instead, what did they do? They tried to attribute that ministry and that power to Satan. But the pagan Gentiles, the lowest of the low in the eyes of the Jews, they saw the signs and they concluded, this must be the God of Israel. Who else could it be? And so Jesus ministered to the crowds. How long was He there? We read in verse 32 that they were there with Him for three days. Three days. Day and night. They didn't want to leave Him. I mean, would you want to leave Him? You bring your child who's sick and He heals your child. Where are you going? Nowhere. Lord, I, I want to know You. I want to spend time with You. I want You to talk to my child. How did You do that? They don't want to leave. So what happens? Look at verse 32. And Jesus called His disciples to Him and said, I feel compassion for the people because they have remained with Me now three days and have nothing to eat. And I do not want to send them away hungry for they might faint on the way. The crowd had gathered from all over the region. And actually Mark 8.3 notes that many of them had traveled a long distance. They'd come a long distance to find Him. And who knows what kind of provisions that they would have brought with them. Did they bring food? Did they bring water? They probably brought something. But you can be sure that if you hear that there is a man who can heal, and he's only a day's journey away, he can heal your wife's cancer. He can heal your father's dementia. He can heal your child's cerebral palsy. You're not thinking about provisions. You're thinking about, let's get there, right? You're not thinking about anything else. But once they're there, thousands of them, by the way, Jesus grows concerned that they're running out of food. And so he's getting to the point where the time comes when he really should send them away. They have other things they have to do. But he's worried that they won't make it home. 
Some of these folks, they're, they're so hungry, even though they're healed and they're doing well, they're, they haven't eaten in a couple days, and if I send them away now, they might not make it home. They might actually starve on the way. And so this concern for the crowd, and note this, is rooted in Jesus' compassion. The Greek word is splanknizomai. It literally means from the guts or from the bowels, as the old English would say. A deep-seated emotion and concern and care for another person. And we've seen this before. Matthew 9.36, we read that Jesus, seeing the multitudes, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. Matthew 14.14, just before he feeds the 5,000, he saw a great multitude and felt compassion for them and healed their sick. Same Greek word, same beautiful heart, same thing. But yet this time there's something different. What's different between those other couple times and this time? Well, in every other instance, including later on in chapter 20, verse 34, Jesus' compassion is directed toward the people of Israel, the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Of course, Jesus' compassion would have always been for Israel. They're his flock. He's their shepherd. And so, yes, of course he has loving compassion and tenderness for them. What's fascinating here is that while the disciples understood that Messiah would come for them, he had been telling them that the bounds of his kingdom were going to extend beyond Israel. In fact, he tells them in John chapter 10, the passage of the Good Shepherd, the disciples, he says to them in verse 16, I have other sheep. I have other sheep, he says, which are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they shall hear my voice, and they shall become one flock with one shepherd. He's talking about the Gentiles. And so we see here, Jesus extends compassion, not just to the Jews, but now to the Gentiles. Same heart. Same heart. I have compassion for these people. These hurting people. These hungry people. And more than this, he's going to demonstrate to them that he's also going to perform a miracle that's going to be identical to the one he just performed in Israel. Now, for us, we read something like this just a few weeks back. It's only a couple weeks ago we talked about the feeding of the 5,000. But for the disciples, this has been several months at this point. And I want us to keep that in mind as we proceed here. But Jesus tells the disciples in verse 32, he's concerned about feeding the people. Look at verse 33. The disciples said to him, Where would we get so many loaves in this desolate place to satisfy such a large crowd? Well, here we go again. We know from verse 38 that the crowd consisted of more than 4,000 men. There's also their wives and the children. And so we're looking at a crowd of, what, 10,000, 15,000 people, if not more? Now, some scholars say that they're They surely would have recalled the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000, right? And maybe they just simply asked the question in verse 33 for the purpose of showing their dependence on God. So it's kind of this sort of, this play acting where he says, well, where are we going to get food? And they say, well, certainly, Lord, we don't have any food. And they kind of look at him like, you know, what are you going to do, right? Some scholars think that's what they're doing, knowing full well he's going to supply all their needs. But here's the thing, I'm not convinced of that. I'm really not. Two main reasons. Reason number one, because we're forgetful people. 
when it comes to the care and the kindness of God. And even though the Lord proves himself to us over and over and over again, we still have a tendency to doubt his provision. How many times has God provided for you and, frankly, bailed you out, and then the very next day something happens and you go, oh, what's going to happen now? Oh, Lord, where are we going to get the money for that? Have you been paying attention? Now, I'm preaching to me. You're just in the room, okay? But doesn't that happen to us? Over and over, God demonstrates his loving kindness and his faithfulness, and we still worry, we still fear, we still doubt. The second reason I think that this is not just play acting is because later in chapter 16, when they're in the boat and they're leaving, they're traveling to the other side of the sea, and Jesus says to them, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. Okay? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. Now, their immediate response is to panic because they forgot to bring food with them. And so they begin to think that he's talking about food. And he rebukes them in verse 11 of that chapter. How is it that he says that you do not understand that I'm not talking about bread? He has to rebuke them in the boat. Fellas, listen to me. I'm not talking about lunch. Because that's what they're talking about. He says, I'm talking about spiritual things. I just rebuked the Pharisees in front of you, and I'm telling you, watch out for those snakes. This is not about your lunch, brothers. This is about beware of the Pharisees. And beware of all false teaching that's going to distract you from your ministry. Forget bread. Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So listen to what I'm saying to you. And then they say, oh, okay. They're so slow to receive this. And so I'm convinced, really, that they're not as spiritually astute as we think they are. Now, by God's grace, they grow. And by the time we get to Peter's letters, I mean, my goodness, he has so much wisdom, so much trust and, and, and respect and, and honor for the Lord. He has to grow, so do we. But at this stage in their ministry, they still don't get it yet. And so Jesus asked for the inventory. Look at verse 34. He says to them, well, how many loaves do you have? And they say, well, seven and a few small fish. That seems hardly enough to feed thousands, certainly. Verse 35, he directed the people to sit down on the ground. Now, this does give us a clue to the dating of this event. In chapter 14, verse 19, the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus tells them to sit on the grass. On the grass. That would have indicated either spring or early summer. But now he says to sit on the ground. We think that's either going to be late summer or early fall. So the time, the seasons have already begun to change here in this region. And so there are several months between the two feedings here, but he commands all the people, 10 or 15,000 people, at least 4,000 men and beyond, to sit down on the ground. Verse 36, And he took the seven loaves and the fish, and giving thanks, he broke them and started giving them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the people. Again, Matthew really undersells the miracle here. He doesn't use descriptive language. He just says they sat down, he gave thanks, and he fed them all. Well, what are you talking about, Matthew? What do you mean he fed them all? He took seven loaves and a few small fish, and he fed them all. That's, that's miraculous. That doesn't happen with just any old prophet, any old false deity. No, this is the true God of Israel feeding all of the people that he had just healed. See, all this bread and fish is leaving the hands 
of Jesus and satisfying the crowd. Now the people were already amazed. They were already amazed at what he had done for healing the sick. And now, now to add just even more blessing, he's going to feed them too. And what's even amazing, if you really think about it, and I contemplated this week and really tried to put myself on this hill in this Gentile region to consider this fact that no Jew had ever been so kind to them. They'd never received kindness from Israel. Because the, the Jews and the Gentiles, they would have hated each other. I mean, the Gentiles just thought the Jews were a bunch of fools and they despised them. And the Jews, they hated them because of their immorality. And they had sort of a, a place of, a position of prominence and, and pride. We're the chosen people and you're not. But Jesus here is so kind to them. So tender. Were they pagans? Yes, they were. And how many of them had, had done detestable things? Probably quite a few of them. It's possible that many of them had even sacrificed their own unborn or their own children to false gods. Many of them were probably stuck in gross immorality. I'm sure all of them had worshipped false gods. Many of them had been serial adulterers. They had done all kinds of things. And Jesus never excuses their sins. He never goes to a Gentile and says, you know what, you don't know any better, it's fine. He never does that. He does not excuse the sin. But what does he do? He extends mercy to them. Mercy. Kindness that they don't deserve at all. He withholds judgment so that they might turn to him. A few things for us to consider here. One, Jesus often had not just the message, the gospel, but he also had a meal. In other words, he didn't just preach. Yes, he preached. He always had the gospel, but he ministered to people's needs. That's really important. That should be a model for us. We are to meet people's physical needs as well as their spiritual needs. Now, the tendency is to fall into both ditches here. Typically, if you're, if you're only meeting the spiritual needs and giving the gospel and say, you know what, if you're, if you're poor and hurting and, and tired and need help, well, oh, good luck to you. But doesn't James speak to that? James chapter 2 He says flat out, if a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to him, go in peace, be warmed and filled, and yet do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead being by itself. He's not talking about being justified by works. He's saying, if you can't prove that you're a believer, if the gospel's never transformed you by what you do, then you're 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 not a Christian. But someone will say, I have faith and I have works, but show me your faith without the works and I will show you my faith by my works. I will demonstrate to you that I love Jesus because I do the things that Jesus does. And he cares for people. So that's one ditch, just to say, you know what? I'm going to minister the gospel, but you know, good luck to you. Woe to us if we do that. But the other danger is this, and this is where this is what happens in theological liberalism all the time. This is where most of New England churches fall. Is they say, oh, we care about all these people's needs. And that's good. But they never minister to the spiritual. They never give them the gospel. So what good is it if you keep them alive and then condemn them to eternity? To perish. Jesus did both here. He had a meal and a message. 
He always had ministry, and he had the gospel ministry. He cares not just about only their eternal future, he cares about what they're doing even in the here and now. So we ought to be focused on both. Certainly, always ministering spiritually. We want to make sure that you have the best spiritual food that we can provide. Biblical preaching, theological teaching, biblically-centered fellowship and small groups and counseling and whatever we can provide that is spiritually nourishing. I want you to have a T-bone steak every single week that you're part of this church. I'm serious. Because so many are lacking. I grew up here. I see it. I've seen all these churches in New England my entire life. And they starve people to death. Woe to them. My family had to travel around the state to find a decent church that would just preach the Bible. So, Lord, please plant and build up biblically-centered churches to feed people spiritually. Without it, we'll perish. But yet, if we get so myopic on only this, this is all that matters ever, and never minister physically, we're not doing what Jesus did. We're failing to meet the actual physical needs. We're failing to demonstrate our faith by other things that we do. And so we have to keep both things in tension and minister the way that Jesus ministers. Again, all for His glory. Second thing I want us to note here. Jesus doesn't expect godliness from those who can't give it. In other words, in other words, and I'm not making a caveat for sin, hear me rightly, sinners came to Him and He gave them the gospel and loved them. They came to Him as sinners and He gave them the gospel. The Pharisees who knew better He doesn't give them an inch. They should know better. And when they don't, he rebukes them and reviles them for their hardness of heart. Does that mean that Jesus is soft on sin? On the contrary. What does it tell the the adulterous woman when he catches her in John 7.53-8.11? At the very end of dealing with the Pharisees and people who were going to stone her, he says, no, go and sin no more. He doesn't just say, oh, it's fine, it's not a big deal. The the Samaritan woman at the well, he calls her out for her sin. Bring your husband. I don't have a husband. That's right, you don't. You've had five. And she's shocked. And we understand that she repents. Jesus understands, however, that salvation and regeneration have to work. And they have to work through the gospel. We have to hear the good news. We have to hear the bad news first, that we're sinners. And we have to hear the good news then, that we can be redeemed. Luke 5.31-32, it is not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick, Jesus said. And so he says afterwards, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. If you're spiritually well and you don't need me, then I'm not here for you. That's what he would have said. I'm here for those who are sick. I'm here for those who are dying. Dying in their sins. Now he demonstrated all that, that action spiritually through the physical He took all those who were the most sick and defiled and desperate people, he took all of them and he healed them physically. We think about Mark chapter 2, right? The man lowered through the ceiling. The first thing he says is, your sins are forgiven. And the people are thinking, that's not what he's here for. Your sins are forgiven. And that's when the Pharisees say, well, no one can forgive sins but God alone. They want to call him out. And so therefore he says, what's easier to say? Rise and take up your pallet and walk, or your sins are forgiven. They scratch their heads. He says, fine. Rise, take your pallet, go home. Man gets up and goes home. He heals him physically, 
Because he's healed him spiritually, he forgave his sins. They go together here. But those who believe themselves to be righteous, if you're here and you think that you're okay, self-justified, religious, I'm all right. They will not accept Christ's salvation. They will not accept his death for them. They just won't. Those who think they're all set. But for those who are spiritually sick and downcast and burdened with guilt and shame, aware of their fallen condition, those are the ones that God extends Himself to. And how does this play out? Because here's here's what happens. You hear a message like this, or you come to church, or someone talks about the Gospel, and your immediate reaction when you hear the good news of Christ, forgiveness of sins, and, and reconciliation with God and life eternal, you think, well, i got to go clean up my life first. You know, let me, let me fix some stuff, and then we'll see what happens in six months to a year. Or you'll go even deeper and say, yeah, I'm beyond saving. I have so much junk in my life, he doesn't want me. You're wrong, my friend. Jesus has come to call the sick and the lowly and the sinful to repentance and salvation. It is, Romans 2.4, it is the kindness of God that leads to repentance. If you're worried that I'm not good enough to come to Christ, then you're perfect to come to Christ. Not perfect completely, but you're the right kind of person to come to Christ if you know you need Him. You get what I'm saying here? He did not come to call the self-righteous, but sinners to repentance. And so, people would come to Him in every form and every condition. And he would, he would heal them, and He would accept their repentance. He had compassion on the Gentiles. And when they demonstrated, when He demonstrated their, their, His goodness to them, they responded by worshiping Him. We should minister to others in the way that when people see the fruit of our compassion, they will, as Paul says in Galatians 1, glorify God because of us. Do people glorify God because of you? When you enter into their life, when you minister to them, when you love them, they're not to praise you, but do they turn to God and say, thank you so much for my friend. Thank you so much for this church. Is that what they do in response to your ministry to them? That's what Paul says. They glorified God because of me. Do we really love the unlovable? Do we really show compassion on those who are downcast and hurting. Jesus does. After all, he took pity on us sinners, didn't he? But Jesus fed the multitudes, verses 37 and 38. And they all ate and then were satisfied. And they picked up what was left over of the broken pieces, seven large baskets full. And those who ate were 4,000 men besides women and children. Some have tried to spiritualize the seven baskets full I don't think you can. I really don't. The 12 baskets that were full in Israel, I think that's pretty significant. 12 disciples, 12 tribes, 12 baskets, pretty straightforward. All the commentators agree with that. But the seven, I read all kinds of weird ideas about the seven number here. I think seven is just seven, frankly. But the word for basket here is different than the other basket that's used. This Greek word, spiridos, refers to a very large basket. So large you could actually stick a person in it. Huge basket full of bread. Seven of those. God's provision is abundant. I think that's the idea. And then verse 39 here. 
sending the crowd away, Jesus got into the boat and came to the region of Magadan. However, he, he doesn't send them away wanting anything. He sends them away healed, full, and satisfied. And while they will not all likely come to saving faith, some just came because they wanted a free lunch, but there were many who did. And no doubt many believed that Jesus was the Christ and they glorified the God of Israel because of him. What about you? What about you? If you have received the loving kindness and compassion of the Lord, then by all means do not withhold it from other people. If God has been so merciful and so generous to you, then you ought to be the most kind and most generous to those who maybe don't look or sound or live like you. We tend to sort of shy, shy away from the, the undesirables. Those who are maybe caught in addiction or struggling. Those who maybe are, they come to us dirty. They come to us with all kinds of defilement. Maybe they, maybe they don't look like us. There's a whole movement right now that wants to, to, to change gender and sexuality. People look different, dress different. A person comes to you broken. It doesn't matter what they look like. They're coming to you broken. Minister the gospel to them. Oh, my friend, I'm so sorry this has happened to you. Let me bring you in and minister Christ's love to you. Beloved, we're going to have a lot of people in the next couple years who are going to come into this assembly absolutely broken. Because culture is not getting any better. There's not a general happiness right now in the world. People are defiling themselves, they're confused, they're deluded, they're depressed, they're freaked out, they're scared. They're going to come here as a last resort. And when they do, how do we treat them? Well, you don't look like you've been to church. Who cares? Who cares how they're dressed? Who cares what their hair looks like? No, if God has shown you kindness and mercy, then we ought to be the most merciful and kind to other people. We don't ever excuse sinfulness. Make that very clear. But when a person comes with repentance, you offer them the salvation of God through Jesus Christ. But maybe you've never received the forgiveness of God. Maybe you've never trusted in Jesus Christ. You know that your sins are present. You understand that you've broken every one of God's laws. You've done things your own way. You don't even give Him a second thought in your life. But you're here at this point and you realize, you know what? I've ruined myself. I need to be forgiven of my sins. I need to be saved. Well, then hear the message of the Gospel, my friend. Jesus Christ came to this world looking just like you and me. Wrapped in the appearance of sinful flesh. And He came to this earth. He lived a perfect life and died on the cross to pay for your sins. To die your death. And on the cross, your sins were forgiven in Him and your life was restored and given back to you eternally because of Jesus. And when He rose the third day, that was when that happened. Jesus came to die, was buried, and He rose again the third day to bring you life. And so what must you do? Well, turn from your sins, first of all. Repent. Say, Lord, I'm done. I, I give up. All my sins, I'm sorry, I'm wrong. You're God, I'm not. Take them away from me, Lord. And I don't want them. That's repentance. And then trust in Jesus Christ alone. 
Lord, you are my only way, truth, and life. You're it. Believe on Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. It does not matter where you came from. It doesn't matter what your history is, your past, your sins. It doesn't matter. Christ can redeem you. He can redeem anyone if you would trust Him. Let's pray. Oh, gracious Lord, we know that You are a God of mercy and a God of compassion. And Lord Jesus, You demonstrated that compassion here where You healed and fed and nourished so many people. People who had spent their entire lives detesting You and hating You. Who gave You no thought at all. And yet with one look, You fed them and You healed them. And You restored them. They despised You and yet You saved them. And so much so with us, Lord, that so many of us, and I would even say all of us, at one point in our life didn't care about You at all. And yet the Scriptures say that even though we were enemies, we were Your enemy, and yet God the Father, You reconciled us through the death of Your Son. That You gave up Your only begotten Son as a ransom for us. And if that wasn't enough, O Spirit of the Lord, You came and indwelled and regenerated and changed our hearts and transformed us from darkness to light. And it's by Your ministry that we could even hear the good news of the Gospel. It's by Your ministry that we can have that broken heart that wants to turn and wants to repent. And it's by Your invaluable ministry that we can walk by the Spirit, by You, to live a life that is pleasing to God, not earning our way, but simply living as debtors to amazing grace. Oh God, our Father, Son, Spirit, we worship You in all truth because You are a merciful, compassionate, loving God who desires not to call the self-righteous, but to call sinners to repentance. And oh, how sinful we have been. And yet you've displayed such mercy and such tenderness. And so, Lord, have mercy on us even now that we would not withhold this marvelous gospel, this saving gospel from those who need it most. That our hearts would be broken for this messed up world. Broken for them. Not condemning them and tearing them down in our hearts, but showing compassion and sympathy and pity for those who need you the most. Oh God, thank you. Thank you for your compassion for the lost. We praise you. We are awestruck at your love. And we give you all honor, praise, and glory. In the name of Jesus Christ.